Tonight's scripture reading is Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, welcome. We're so glad that you are here with us, worshiping with us at Grace. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown. And uh, tonight we're continuing in this series in the first couple of books of the Bible uh, where we are talking about living stones, what it means to be living stones. This is the verbiage that Peter uses in 1 Peter to describe the church of God. And one of the things he means by that is that we're being built up into a spiritual house and uh, the foundation is built on Jesus, but it's a, a family that we're a part of, a building that is being built that goes back for generations and centuries. So we're taking a look at these first two books of the Bible to see the family that we have come from. And as we do that, we're learning more about who we are. We're learning more about the family, the larger family that we're a part of. And ultimately, we're answering the question, who is God? Who is the father, the cornerstone, the originator of this family? Tonight, we're going to do this in two ways. The first one is we're going to do a summary, more like a Bible study than a sermon, over Genesis 37 and 38. I say a summary because it's two narratives that are very complex with a lot of things going on, and to do it justice, we would need to spend even more than one sermon. So we're just going to hit the highlights and look at some takeaways from it. Then the second way that we're going to look at this principle tonight is that we're going to talk about some things about who we are as a church. In two weeks, I start my sabbatical for a few weeks where my family and I will not be worshiping here for a few weeks as we take a season to to rest and focus on our family. Um, So next Sunday will be our last time with you and it will be my last sermon before sabbatical. And before I go on sabbatical, I want to share some things with you that I'm going to be praying for the church as I go on sabbatical. And I didn't want to hit those next week because next week is Easter and that's Jesus's big day. So I didn't want to take away from that. So we're going to do that tonight. And I think it's actually the scripture we're looking at tonight is a good segue into those things. So we're going to look at Genesis 37 and 38. We're going to worship in song for a couple more songs together, and then I'm going to come back up. So uh, don't get too excited when the first sermon only goes like 15 or 20 minutes because there's a second one to come. So don't get too excited. So Genesis 37, as I said, we're going to summarize what's taking place here. 
in Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, we pick up the narrative of this guy named Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. This guy, Joseph, is now going to dominate the story through the end of the book of Genesis. Jacob has 12 sons. We talked about Jacob last week and the week before that. Joseph who we pick up his narrative in Genesis 37. Joseph comes via Jacob's wife, Rachel, that we learned about a couple of weeks ago, and comes when Jacob is in his old age. It's his next to last son, his 11th son. Joseph is also his favorite because it's the the son of his old age and he gets to spend extra time with Joseph as the older brothers are off, even starting their own lives. And Joseph is his favorite son. And we learn in Genesis 37 that Joseph is given this special coat by his father. Now, tradition and Broadway say it was a coat of many colors. But when we look at the actual Hebrew, that's not quite right. There's two images that the Hebrew language gives us for his coat. It could mean one of two things, and they're both basically the same thing. One thing that describes this coat is that it was distinct, The Hebrew word that's used for this coat means it is distinct. It is different than an everyday coat, and it is different from his brother's coats. As we picked up the scripture tonight in verse 5, it said that his brothers hated him even more. And then we hear they hated him even more. This coat was distinct, and it was different than what the father gave to the son. And if you've ever had children or been a child or been around children, they have a very keen radar for things that are not quite fair. Their memory is very good when it comes to things not being perfectly fair. The other imagery we get uh, from the Hebrew language is that this coat was unfolding. That means it was big and it had many folds in it. It wasn't a common coat that you would use for shepherding. When we went through our series through Ephesians a couple years ago, we talked about the manifold wisdom of God and how diversity in the church shows the manifold wisdom of God. It uses the same word, manifold, unfolding. So it's a distinct robe or gown of some kind that is separate from an everyday coat and separate from what his brothers have received. At the age of 17, he has two dreams that we just covered in the scripture reading for tonight. One where his brothers, represented by these sheaves of grain, are bowing down to him. And then another where it takes it even a step further when even the heavenly beings are bowing down to Joseph as well as the 11 stars representing his brothers. These dreams are a foreshadowing of things that would take place. Because I'm not going to steal the future sermon here, but as we follow the story of Joseph, we see that these things take place in Joseph's life. And Joseph's life is a crazy winding story, but it ends up with him being in a place of power and position where he benefits the nation of Egypt. And then he also is able to benefit his own family by feeding and providing for them in a famine. And they literally come and bow down before him and beg for food. This is a foreshadowing of what God's going to do in the future with Joseph and with this family. As we read here three times, his brothers hated him even more and it leads to action against him. They take him and they throw him in a pit 
and they leave him there until they figure out what to do with him. And then a caravan, a a tribe comes through and they sell him to a tribe of Midianites, which are part of the Ishmaelites. And you may, that may ring a bell when we go back to the story of Ishmael. We talked about how he was given a promise that his people would become great. Well, these tribes came through and the sons of Jacob sold this favorite brother to this Midianite tribe as they were coming through. And then eventually we read that these Midianites then sell Joseph to a group of people from Egypt and Joseph ends up in Egypt. Again, this is all setting up a narrative that's going to last through the rest of the book of Genesis. So what do we learn from this sordid tale? First, this sets up the whole Joseph narrative. This narrative of Joseph, uh, Genesis 37 through 50, it's really an amazing story and goes into more detail than just about anyone in the book of Genesis, maybe outside of Abraham. This story of Joseph is a narrative that I will often give to people as I am sitting down doing one-on-one discipleship or counseling with them because this story of Joseph is an excellent story that he sums up very well at the end of his life when he says what man intended for harm, God intended for good and the saving of many lives. Joseph didn't always do the right thing. There was great evil and injustice done to Joseph time and time again, yet God had a plan for him and used him in a way that brought joy and prosperity to his life, but also the saving of an entire nation. So this sets up some of the framework of what we're going to see happen in Joseph's life. Second, we learn that God has a plan. God has a plan for Joseph. God has a plan for Jacob and his people. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. God has a plan for the nation of Egypt. In the story of Joseph, the reason it's going into so much detail is it's setting up this narrative of what's going to take place in the entire book of Exodus. We're going to hit the highlights of the book of Exodus. You guys are while I'm on sabbatical. And as you do, you'll see that God is at work here and God has a plan for all these different people. So if we zoom in on these individual chapters of Genesis, we see these stories and we're like, what is, what is going on here? How do I get anything out of this? Or can this really be God's people? Or does God know what's going on over here? But it's all part of God's plan. And then a key takeaway from this is that he uses us as part of his plan. The reason that this zooms in on Joseph so closely is, and the other people in Genesis as well, is so that we would start to relate with these people. We can see bits and pieces of ourself and our own story and our own world so that we can start connecting to the God that is writing this whole story. God is using Joseph to advance what he is trying to do. Clearly, Joseph has a gift for prophecy and receiving the future in dreams. And then he is speaking this, and then it is coming true. He also has gifts of administration, strategic leadership, forethought for seeing what's coming and preparing the people around him. He is a great steward, a great business leader of what God has given him, and he ends up being able to provide for his nation and for his family. So we see God using Joseph as a part of his story. 
And these visions, this prophecy, these dreams, these gifts that Joseph is given, they're not just for himself. They're given for the benefit of other people, which time and time again, scripture uses that as the authenticity of if a gift is real or not, or if a prophecy or a dream or a vision or anything like that is real. The confirmation of it is, does it build up the church? Does it advance the purposes of God? And in this story, we see that it's the case. We're supposed to see Joseph and see God interacting with humanity. We're supposed to see God interacting with everyday people like you and me. We're going to see this very vividly in the brokenness of Genesis 38 in just a moment. But before we go forward, one more note that we learn from Joseph. If you have a dream where your siblings, your coworkers, your spouse, your people in your community group are bowing down to you, maybe don't tell them. It's a good application as well. We flip over to Genesis 38 and we see a very strange curveball. Between Genesis 37 and Genesis 50, this is the only chapter that's not about Joseph. It picks up the story of Judah, who is another one of Jacob's kids. Judah had a son whose name was Ur, and he married a woman named Tamar. And we're told one thing about Ur. Well, two things. He was wicked and God killed him because he was wicked. There's a reality in scripture that is really hard for us to wrap our human brains around. We are told in scripture and we are shown time and time again in scripture and in our own lives that there is not a one-to-one correlation where every time we sin, God brings judgment immediately. And at the same time, sometimes he does. In the Old Testament and in the New, there are examples of God just dropping someone dead because they lied, because they were evil, because they didn't repent. And here we see this happen with Judah's son, Ur. So as a traditional Near Eastern family would, because Ur died, this, uh, this daughter-in-law, Tamar, couldn't have a family and couldn't advance the family. And so then Judah commands Ur's son, Onan, to then marry Tamar, have relations with Tamar, and advance the family through Tamar. We're told Onan is evil and he refuses to uh, have intercourse with his wife and he drops dead as well. This is the family of God, don't forget. Tamar then has a plan. She says, if, if this isn't working out, I will have children and I will advance my family. And so she tricks Judah, who is her father-in-law, and she poses as a woman of the night. I'm going to use some euphemisms here that are a little bit more vague than what scripture says because my kids are here, your kids are here, my mother-in-law is here, my mother is here. We're going to use euphemisms tonight. So Tamar poses as a woman of the night uh, and Judah then sees her and pays money to have relations with her and she gets pregnant. So she tricks her father-in-law so that she can have a child. Then she comes back and says, I'm having a child. And Judah says, we need to stone her because she's an illicit woman. How dare he, first of all? Good grief. But then she says, no, actually, I have this staff that belongs to you. And Judah says, oh my goodness, what have I done? And he marries Tamar. 
Tamar then has twins by Judah, her father-in-law. These twins are named Perez and Zerah. Some of these names may ring a bell, and we're about to discover why. But the fascinating thing is that history, nor the genealogies, say anything about Ur or Onan, who were the rightful line of God to continue the people of God. But instead, we see something written about Tamar and Perez and Zerah. If we look ahead at Matthew chapter 1, where we see the genealogy leading up to the birth of Christ, we find something peculiar. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, the Perez, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abimadad, and Abimadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So we see here from Abraham to David, and then it continues and it lists out from David up to the birth of Christ. And we're told that Jesus is sometimes says that he came from the line of Judah. Sometimes it says from the line of David. Same thing as we see here in this genealogy. But the amazing thing about this genealogy is the highlighted names that you see up here. We just heard the story of Tamar. We talked about Rahab about a year ago. You may or may not know the story of Ruth, but these are three Gentile women. These are three women that at one time or another, either by what they did or what was done to them, they did not have a good reputation. They were not naturally into, uh, born into the family of God. Yet, God uses them to advance his purposes and puts them in this genealogy that leads up to Christ. So, why did God choose to do this? Why does he have such a, a winding path of genealogy, even leading to the birth of Christ? Two reasons. First, God's plans will not be thwarted. God's plans will not be thwarted. All of us have things that have happened to us, and all of us have things that we have done that could negate the plan of God in our own minds. We all have brokenness, we all have sin, we all have suffering, we have all endured injustice, we have all given out injustice to others. But stories like this are in scripture to show us that God's plans will not be thwarted. If we read these individual stories of Tamar, of Rahab, of Ruth, if we read the story of Joseph, if we read the story of Mary and Joseph, we find people just like you and me, and we see God's purposes advancing. No election can thwart God's plans. No sin that we have done can thwart God's plans. No specific personal injustice or more Systemic societal injustice can keep God's plan from moving forward. How often do we despair because we think something has not gone God's way? And how often do we despair because of our own sin and we wallow in shame and think, God can't use this mess? These stories are here to show us that he can. We see that people can 
God can use people like you and me. If we go back to Genesis 35, we see another genealogy, another family tree that is an absolute train wreck. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but this is Jacob, who his name is changed to Israel. We learned about that last week. And then his sons form the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at this family line. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, right? Okay, so far so good. Jacob has 12 sons. That's the 12 tribes of Israel, becomes the people of God, right? The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zophah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob. Four women. Two sisters. We heard that whole story. Two slave women that lived in the house. This is the people, the special people of God. This is the family that we are grafted into. And if there's a place for them, then there's a place for you. Don't think you've blown it too big. Don't think that your family or your people group is too broken. If God can use these people to advance his plan, he can use us as well. This year, as early as we are into this year, ending up or beginning the fourth month, the year has not necessarily gone according to your plan. It hasn't necessarily gone according to mine. But nothing we do or that is done to us can negate God's plan. We are a part of a lineage and a people and a family tree that is not pristine and is a mess, just like this one. But the point is that we're grafted into a family where God is the heavenly father and Jesus is the cornerstone and Jesus is the older brother and Jesus is the one that lays down his life for you and for me. And Palm Sunday, this Sunday where we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem is not the story of a conquering king coming in to take an earthly throne. It's a wounded servant who comes and lays down his life for the people that would put him on a cross, his very own flesh and blood. One day we will celebrate this king as he sits on his rightful throne with the collected people of God throughout history. We're going to do that right now. Would you stand with me? And we're going to take some time to worship this king and really model and foreshadow what the future worship will be like in the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for the chance to worship tonight with brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we turn to you. God, you are the one that is deserving of our praise. You are our good heavenly father. God, we look forward to that day when some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will worship together. God, we want to be a picture of that here and now. Promise to keep this quick, but I want you to know the things that I'm praying for you um, as my family and I take this sabbatical. Four things that I'm praying that we would be. Four things that I'm praying that we would do. Um as we look ahead to the future. The first one is that we would be a people of worship. I added this in uh, last night after my family spent some time at what they call Saturday school at Faith Academy, where we worship with the students at Faith Academy and the 
just beautiful, diverse, amazing school that my kids go to. And hearing the voices of the kids worship there uh, is just one of my favorite times of worship out of the whole year. The favorite time of my week is getting to sing with all of you and hear your voices as you remind me of the good news of the gospel and what this is all about as we sing the good news together. I didn't add this until last night because this is a theme that God is already showing me in my life that I want to change about myself and I want to lead our church in as I come back from sabbatical and that's that we would be a people of worship. I've lost sight of being a person and us being a church of worship, not just the church that sings, though that's great, but truly being a church that focuses on all of who God is and worshiping him for who he is. I get so caught up in the business of running a church and putting on a weekly service and getting together a weekly sermon. And I get so caught up in the relational dynamics of things going on in my life and the lives of other people that it's easy to lose sight of what this is all about. And what this is all about is worshiping the one who is worthy of our praise, the one that we just sang about. A.W. Tozer in the newly kind of put together book on worship that they've released, though he said it decades ago, said that um, unless the church is worshiping, all their other acts of service, services are dead before the Lord. God wants us to be a people of worship because he is worthy of our praise. God wants us to be a people of worship because that's what slaves do when they've been set free. We've been set free from our sins. And we know good news. And we don't have any good news to share with anyone else until we remember that it's good news for us too. So I, I want to pray this for our church. I want to pray this for myself. And I want to lead well in this as I come back from sabbatical. Number two, we, that we would be a people of prayer. What we are trying to do is make disciples who make disciples and be good news people in a world full of bad news. And it is impossible work. We cannot do it in our own strength, with our own devices, with our own catchphrases and logos and initiatives. I can't do it with one sermon. We can't do it on, in having a great community group. We can't do it by moving to Sunday mornings. We can only do it through prayer. We are trying to redeem the broken mess of our lives as we take good news to a people that have only heard bad news and have plenty of brokenness in their own lives and communicate a message that without the moving of God will not be believed by anyone. We must be a people of prayer. There are action steps that you can take right now to be a person of prayer so we can become a church of prayer. One, um, I think I put a few things up here. One is before service prayer. I would love our before service prayer time when we get folks together that um, are a part of the service. I would love to add to that. I would love to outgrow our room back here where we can't meet back there because there's so many people praying before the service. I want to encourage you to come early next week for Easter. Um, bring your parents, whoever's coming with you, come early. That's totally fine. But we're going to gather together. Um, probably right over here will give us the most space, but we're going to gather together to pray that the the message of Easter would 
fall on good soil and people would respond to Christ for the first time. Come a few minutes early. We'll gather together just like 10 minutes before the service starts. would love for you to join us and would love for that to become a new thing that people, we just come a little early and we um, pray together. Another opportunity that we have is after service prayer walks. Now that the weather's nice, that the sun is still up after church, uh, that it's not absolutely freezing after church, would love for there to be times where we always end service on our feet, saying we're good news people, we want to worship Jesus with our feet, we want to take the good news of the gospel with our hands and feet. Sometimes we should just do that. Just walk right on out of the building. I guess you need to get your kids first. Don't leave your kids here and walk around downtown for a couple hours and then go to dinner. Um, But it would be great, wouldn't it, if we just left from being on our feet and we walked down and did a lap around downtown Iowa City and just prayed. Prayed for the power of God to move in this community. We can pray for the nations. We can pray for the 107 nations represented at the University of Iowa. We can pray that a student from each of those nations would come to Christ and then take that good news back to their country. We can pray that the good news would take foot in places that are unreached or difficult for the gospel to get to. We can pray for our missionaries that are all over the world for their safety, for the good news, for their relationships. We can pray for the nations. And then we can be a people of prayer by interceding for one another. We have the prayer team up here every week. Encourage you to bring your prayer requests to them, big or small. Encourage you to pray in groups, big and small. Encourage you to pray with one another. As you share one another's burdens, just offer to pray for one another on the spot. I'm praying that we would be a people of prayer. And I've been saying this to the downtown staff and to the downtown elders and some of the community groups, but um, nothing would bless my heart more and encourage me more than to come back and hear that prayer groups have just taken off. That we just don't have time to do anything else because people are just constantly praying. That the service is ending late because we're praying. I would love to come back and hear that that movement of the Spirit has taken place. Next, that we would be a people who know and use our gifts. We would know and use our gifts. I want to use an illustration that I am stealing from Fred Skiff. He's a physics professor here at the university. Brilliant man. Um, And he used this example in terms of science, but you can really use it in any discipline. I went to a lecture of his last week. So, kids, what is this? What's on the screen right now? Can any kids tell me what's on the screen right now? Go ahead and shout it out. What's on the screen right now? What is it? ABCs? Okay, it's the ABCs. That's right. That's A through Z. When the English language first started to be written and we discovered what the ABCs were and we listed out A through Z, was that the end of the study and the use of English language? No, that's just the beginning. That's just the component parts, right? You can rearrange those letters to write book upon book upon book upon book. And they're still writing book upon book upon book. Every year, hundreds more novels and nonfiction books are out. You go to the library and the new shelves are just constantly full year after year after year. We just keep rearranging those letters to make things with them. I'm doing that right now as you listen to the sound of my voice. You're doing that as you're thinking in your head, is it time for supper yet? You're, you're taking those letters and you're rearranging them in your mind. 
Now, here's the illustration that I'm going for with this. God has given us the component parts to do the work that he has called us to do. Now, he is asking us to take those things, to take those component parts, which is basically the good news of the gospel and the unique talents, abilities, and stories that you have, and he wants to do some good work through it. That's what Joseph did. There was a famine in the land, and Joseph rose up and went through all that junk to be in that place at that time. And he says what man intended for evil, God intended for good and the saving of many lives. He wants to do something similar in you, in us, and in this community. He has given this church everything that it needs to accomplish the purposes that he has given us to do. But it's only going to happen if each person does their part. And there are two ways that we can live that out. The first way is by doing good in this community and then in the larger community. Serving the people in your community, in the community group, in the church, and then serving people out in the world. So first we'll talk about the world very briefly. Joseph faced an actual famine where there was a drought and there wasn't enough food. There is a famine in our land as well, and it's a relational famine. We are more wealthy and affluent and upwardly mobile than any generation that's ever lived, and we're relationally starving. We're relationally starving. The dean of students at the University of Iowa, Angie Ream, is a believer. She goes to Grace and North Liberty. Right before the pandemic, she told me, I am scared to death for this generation, and I don't know if they're going to be able to succeed because of how lonely they are. That was before the pandemic. The last three years has not helped with loneliness. Students are lonely. Students are anxious. And it's been going on for the last few years. And so those students are now adults. Our society is struggling to find relational connection and good news. And God has placed us here and now for such a time as this. And the downtown church is about reaching people that live in work in or study in the University of Iowa or downtown Iowa City. It's either people made up of those people or people trying to reach those people. And God has put us exactly where we are to reach those people and bring relational connection and the good news of the gospel to them. Then in the church, we have an opportunity to use our gifts in the church to accomplish what God is calling us to do right here in the walls of the church and in the biblical community. As we serve one another in community group, um, as we're training the community group leaders, we are not training them to do everything that it takes to run your community group. We are training them to identify what needs to be done in a community group and then invite all of the group into leading the group and discipling the group together as a community project. Also, there is work to be done just to put on a service here each week so we can worship together and so the good news can be proclaimed from all of us down to the littlest of one in the nursery. Using our gifts in the body of Christ is more than just setting up chairs, but it is not less than just setting up chairs. So we can use our gifts by doing the work that it takes to just put on a weekly service here. I want to encourage you too that discipling And leading others just means being one step ahead of someone that you are trying to lead. 
I think sometimes we think, well, but I'm not an expert on this, or I've only been married for a hot minute, or I've only been a graduate student for a little bit, and we, we wonder, do I have anything to offer? I want to encourage you that you do. There are people in this church that you need your unique voice, your unique perspective to speak into their lives. We are going to start doing volunteer signups this year instead of in the summer. We're going to start doing them right now. That's because we don't, <clears throat> we don't have enough people to do the things that we need to do just to put on the weekly service. This room is empty when the setup team gets here at 2.30, and we have to set up every single thing that's in here. And the more people that chip in, the more weeks that you can have off where you're not coming early. Otherwise, it's the same people that need to come each week and do the setup. So if you are currently not serving or you want to talk to us about some roles that you could do or maybe even changing what you're currently doing, you can click on this. This is kind of a new option we have for you. You can also uh, scan this with your phone if you just open the camera of your phone It'll zoom in on that, and it will go to a web page where you can fill out a connection card, where you can join our email list, where we send out a weekly email. You can tell us that you want to serve. You can share a prayer request with the staff in a confidential way, and you can also sign up for financial giving as well. Lastly, I'm praying that we would be a people who live a life of hospitality. The word hospitality means welcoming strangers that we would be a group of people that welcomes strangers into our community, into our church, into our homes, and into our lives. New York Times, a couple of weeks ago, had the story of a grad student, Anita Mashad, who's 24 years old and lives in New York City and is a grad student. She launched something during the pandemic called Dinner with Friends. On the tail end of the pandemic, she felt very lonely. She had moved to New York City during the pandemic and felt like a lot of people she knew were lonely as well. So she started Dinner with Friends. In Dinner with Friends, she invites eight strangers who she doesn't already know, but she has their contact info. She invites eight strangers to come and um, have dinner, and she serves dinner to all of them, and she lives in a one-bedroom apartment in New York City. She's also a grad student, which means she is not loaded. Okay, grad students, can I get an amen? She is not loaded. She doesn't have a big fancy house. She's not a professional chef. But she is inviting people into her home on a weekly basis, and she calls it dinner with friends. And she intentionally invites people she doesn't know. The purpose of this meal is that after someone leaves, they're now a friend. That is hospitality. It's giving of the very little that you have, even if you have little, to welcome others into your life and home. She now has an online sign-up to join Dinner with Friends, and there is an 800-person waiting list. Are you a grad student with no money? Are you a young couple that's just trying to figure out marriage for the first time? Are you having your first child and you're scared to death and you don't know what to do? Are you struggling in your faith? Are you not sure what a disciple looks like? You can welcome a stranger into your life, into your home, and share the good news with them in word and in deed. You can be honest and transparent. Dr. Marissa Warren studied 
this idea of hospitality at the University of Pennsylvania and says, the more we start to engage with other people, the more joy we receive. When you add in the spiritual dynamic there of what God is trying to do, welcoming strangers into our home does a great good for us. And I think moving forward, it is the primary way that the good news is going to advance. Obviously, it's the power of God preached. It's the power of God lived out. Ultimately, it's what Jesus has done for people. But the best way to share it is going to be inviting people into our home. Shouting into a megaphone on the ped mall or even sharing the idea of substitutionary atonement with someone or inviting them to church, it doesn't necessarily resonate with them in the same way this idea of inviting them into our lives does. This Anita has 800 people on her waiting list. People are starving to be fed. Not just real food, physical food, but they're starving to be fed relationally. I'm praying that we would be a church that welcomes strangers to the point where they turn into friends. Where we welcome people into our lives, whether we know them or not. Neighbors, coworkers, people at church, people not in church. And we just start to love people well. Guys, I overthink evangelism all the time. I feel guilty about evangelism all the time. Andrew Meredith, for a class this week, had to interview me on my own personal evangelism. There's a way to feel good about yourself. But everyone is looking for a friend. Everyone is looking for a home-cooked meal. And no matter what your means are, you can offer that to others. Friends, this is going to be a big year at Grace Downtown. This year, in the year of 2023, we are going to transition from being a church that is planting to a planted church. You're going to start hearing more about that as we get into the summer. I encourage you to come to our members meeting on uh, Sunday, June 25th, which is right after the service where we'll lay out what the rest of the year is going to look like. But uh, we want to take some concrete step as a leadership team here at Grace Downtown to be an established church so we can continue to see the good news spread to a people that desperately need it here in downtown Iowa City. Would you pray with me that this takes place? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we're dependent upon you to do only what you can do. Father, we pray that we would be a people that worship you. We pray that we would be a people that remember that we have been delivered from our sins, that we're no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves to righteousness, Jesus, because of your work. God, we pray that we would live like we know good news. God, we pray that we would Walk in the humility that worshiping you necessitates, God. God, we pray that we would be people that live in humble dependence upon you. We pray that we would be people of hospitality. We pray that we would be people that serve and love one another well. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for the men, women, and children that worship with us, that are a part of this community. God, thank you for the joy and the honor of getting to serve them. And God, we look forward to celebrating our risen king next week at Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.